Have the Conversation Podcast. Have the Conversation Podcast. Have the Conversation Podcast. The Have the Conversation Podcast. Have the Conversation Podcast. Real people, real conversations. I am pumped to be part of Have the Conversation. Our guest this week is a self-experimenting meditator who spent three years wearing an EEG cap so scientists could examine how different techniques affected her brain. That's right. Vanessa Potter, author of Patient H69 and Finding My Right Mind, stopped by to talk with us all about a time in 2012 when she woke up one morning blind and paralyzed. I still cannot believe how amazing our minds are. I know. Meditation was integral to her recovery. Her curiosity, backed by scientific research, helped her to uncover the inner workings of her own brain. That set her off on a journey of discovery that resulted in a science art collaboration with neuroscientists, those two books we mentioned, and a TEDx talk. Something tells us you'll want to know more about Vanessa after you listen to our conversation. So be sure to head over to htcpod.com to watch clips of the show, connect with Vanessa, and more. While you're there, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. How's your sleep lately? As a trainer, the subject of sleep is often a main topic of discussion. Nobody sleeps perfectly every night, but I have to tell you, I've never slept better than I have since I've discovered the Chili Pad. Chili Pad is a mattress pad that uses cooling technology to keep your bed at exactly the temperature you want all night long. You can set it as low as 55 degrees, like my furnace of a fiance does, or take it all the way up to 95 if you have no problem staying cold on your own. Our bodies need a dark and cool atmosphere to get the most out of our sleep. And the Chili Pad has been one of my favorite sleep hacks to do just that. Go to ChiliPad.com to learn more about the Chili Pad and its upgrade, the Uller. That's C-H-I-L-I-P-A-D.com. They even offer a new Chili weighted blanket to keep you calm and cool all night long. If you like what you see, use the code HAVETHECOMBO for a special discount at checkout. That's all one word, HAVETHECOMBO, for discounts off your new Chili Pad sleep tight. You went on this journey (laughs) to find your mind. You wrote an insightful and relatable book that we couldn't put down. And um, you've spoken about it on some pretty impressive stages. So I wanted to know if you could speak on the experience that led you to start out on this journey. Wow. So we have to go back in time to yeah. do that. It's funny because I get asked this a lot. And yeah, there's a bit of the woo. Um, it is a, it's a long story, actually. Um, and it, sometimes it's difficult to find the beginning, but there is a probably an event, let's face it, that kind of precipitated, that started this all off. And, and that was in 2012. I was an advertising TV producer. I made TV commercials. Awesome. <laughs> I made TV commercials, the things that everyone like, <laughs> ignores and fast forwards. Well, I made a load of those. <laughs> Thanks for that, was, Vanessa. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and I did, I did that. I was actually head of a department, so I was doing pretty well. And um, I got to a good place in my career. And I went freelance. I had two little babies. So I was like, that's it. Like, I've done. I've done the career. I'll just put that on hold. I'll spend some time with the kids. And I'll go freelance. And I'll have life work for me. And so that was my grand plan. And then, of course, fate comes along and threw me a curveball. And that was that basically I had this dreadful flu virus, which had knocked me out. And I thought I was recovering. And then on a Monday morning, I woke up um, feeling very strange. And it's funny because I woke up knowing that something really big was happening. I basically felt very, very dizzy. 
and I was sent off to accident in emergency. And they did every test they could and said, look, there's nothing wrong with you, sent me home. And then the next morning I woke up and I'd lost 70% of my vision. And that was where my life changed. And throughout the course of that day, a sort of a numbness, a very strange tingling started in my fingertips and that crept up my hands. And eventually then it, it went in my toes and started to creep up my legs. And within 72 hours, I had lost all of my sight. It had gone to completely black. It basically went smaller and smaller through like a pinprick. It ended up in a pinprick. It was sort of like a halo that was getting smaller and smaller and the world was going sort of browns and then dark browns and then dark greys and then eventually black. And in the meantime, the numbness had spread and caused paralysis in my hands, arms and legs. So by that sort of Thursday morning, my life was something completely different. And I had to find resources. And that's kind of where this story starts. And that's what's so incredible about all of us. And I'm, I'm still kind of in awe about the mind and my mind and what they can do, minds. And <laughs> I had resources. And I kind of had never really thought about this, but I'd used hypnobirthing during the birth of both my children. And so I had some tools. So I started doing what I've been taught to do, which is to visualize. And I visualized a beach because that's what I've been taught to do. And I went on this beach in my mind. It's an imaginary thing. And I walked up and down and I created a safe sanctuary. And this was incredibly powerful. And I also used breathing. So I used something called, it's a yogic breath called golden thread breath. And this is a very, very simple model. It's lots of breathing uh, techniques are based around a, a shorter breath in and a very long exhale. And those are the two things that I did to save my mind. And they were exceedingly important. Now, I can't kind of put my hand up and said, say that at the time I knew what I was doing. I didn't. There was no kind of cognition. This was pure gut survival instinct. I had doctors around me telling me, you might have a brain tumor, you might have multiple sclerosis. We just don't know. We don't even know if you're going to live. So I needed a way to be able to control, you know, this kind of rising fear and panic. And these tools, they didn't take it all away. Of course they didn't, but they took the edge off. And the other really important thing is they gave me something tangible that I could do for my own well-being, for my own health. So it gave me control over a situation that I literally had no control over. So it was many months later when I looked back at this and I saw what I'd you know I could kind of have the stand back perspective of what I'd done that I just kind of went wow that was incredible and that's where the journey started that and also researching my vision um, as it started to return it took two weeks to start to return not to come back I should mm -hmm. say it took a whole year for my vision to return and it wow. came back very slowly a bit like a bit like an old computer rebooting it came back layer by layer and I was I was basically legally blind for about four months um, but I bit by bit more and more detail would come so I'd be able to see outlines and I could see some contrast which is the the difference between light and shade and then I might see um, a bit of like a skeletal like a like a, a leaf skeleton I used to be able to see like little outlines um, and colour didn't come back for months and months. So I, I lived in a very different world from my family and I had to learn to walk again as well. And that took months and months. 
So yes, during this recovery, I continued with the visualization, with the breathing, and yeah, a kind of curiosity started to grow out of all of that. And that was kind of my coping mechanism, really, because you have a choice when this kind of, you know, they call it a catastrophic episode. It's a very good term. It's exactly what it was. <laughs> Pretty catastrophic. It was catastrophic. <laughs> and yeah. it stopped me in my tracks. Uh, but I kind of made a choice. It's like, okay, you know, I've had this thrown at me. What am I going to do with it? And I thought, well, curiosity, you know, that's my instinct is to understand this. And in some ways, I suppose to kind of conquer it and turn it into something that will actually suit me. So I used it as a springboard, my whole experience. And I thought, well, damn it. If you're going to wipe out my career, you'll give me another one. You're going to give me a much better, much more interesting career. And that was kind of my mindset. And that's what I've then been doing. (laughs) Very, very relatable. In your book, it's all about all the different types of meditations and breath work and everything that you tried. You kind of glazed over the beginning, like what you just went over now. Um, Did they ever, the doctors ever tell you what caused this catastrophic episode? Or do you have any idea of what got you to that place? Yeah, well, well, going kind of, you know, historically through this, I actually wrote a book called Patient H69, um, which is all about that um, incredible period of time in my life, which is why it skimmed over a little bit in the second one. I gotcha. Okay. Um, They called it um, NMOSD, which is otherwise known as Devic's disease. But I was <laughs> getting used to being a really rare and unusual case. <laughs> it, it was kind of one in millions that would have had the variant that I had, which was something called the monophasic variant, which means that you, the idea is that you get it once, but you get it really badly. And mm. that was um, what happened with me. Um, it's an autoimmune neurological illness. Mm. Is it like brought on by stress or is it just totally random or do they know? Yeah, they don't know that there are markers. Um, there's an amazing organization in the US called the Guthrie Jackson. And I've, I've actually gone and um, spoken on their stage. They do a lot of research into the causes and also symptoms and, and, and treatments and hopefully cures. We don't know is the answer. It affects yeah. more women than men. Um, it tends to affect people over 40, but it also gets younger people and it can affect people in very varying ways. Some people just have their sight loss. Some people have full paralysis and they don't recover I went on stage to talk to the patients Um, it was patient day for their big conference in LA that was a very humbling moment because I walked on stage (sighs) and half the audience were in full tilt recline wheelchairs and um, yeah but it was funny because at that talk they put (laughs) it's hilarious really I mean I laughed about it on stage with everyone else they put a glass podium in the middle of the stage, which is someone who's partially sighted, which is me. Oh God. It's the worst thing in the world. So I'm walking over going, okay, I gotta guess where this thing is. And I'm gonna guess how to put my piece of paper on there. And they also had this bizarre carpet, which is this swirling carpet, a real kind of slightly uh, late 70s, early 80s, maroon and cream. And it was a nightmare visually. <laughs> so I'm trying to look at all these people and there's this swirling carpet and then they've got all these flags behind and halfway through and the, the talk's actually on YouTube. I go, oh, is everyone else like really messed up with this room? I mean, Guthy Jackson, I love you, but why did you book this? Visually, this is a snowstorm. I haven't been walking into tables all day long. And of course, I'm kind of about laughing because... 
you know, visually, we, we all have lots of strategies and um, a lot of people with NMO have to create strategies um, to survive because you don't see the world in the same way. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, it was just a little defining moment. Wow. Yeah, that's, yeah, they should have thought that one through a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe call on somebody, you know, get some advice on how to set it up. That's yeah, call so me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, a big theme for you was loving kindness. Uh, and we, we, Leanne and I were talking before this just about how, oh my gosh, we could relate. <laughs> Just how brutal that was for you um, Mm. because that inner voice and compassion for others and yourself is is very, very difficult. Can you speak on that a little bit? Um, Wherever you want to go with it is fine. Yeah, compassion. I mean, it's this funny word. Certainly in in Britain, if you say, you know, compassion, people kind of just go, they kind of (laughs) just recoil and, and their toes curl a little bit. And we kind of just, you know, look a bit embarrassed and it's, and yet this idea of having, um, you know, a, a love for other people that is non-conditional, it's such a, 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 it's such a misnomer. It's something that we don't really think about enough, if at all. And so loving kindness was this, what I thought was going to be this wishy-washy, easy practice after learning transcendental meditation and mindfulness I was like, oh, you know, I've done tantric. I can, I can do this. It will be easy. And it was by far one of the hardest techniques because it makes you confront yourself. Mm-hmm. And we spend a lot of our life making ourselves busy. We travel at great speed, don't we, in life? And so to actually slow down enough and confront yourself and actually those raw emotions and that compassionate element that sits very deeply within the well of whoever you are is a very difficult thing to do. And it, and it's very common for anybody who practices or starts a practice using loving kindness to struggle enormously and actually to have quite, you know, an emotional breakdown, you know, or to find it very, very challenging and upsetting because I found, and, and, and I, I've related with other people since, um, I couldn't find any love. And that was just a shock. And the more I practiced, the more that that started to grow. And of course, within Buddhism, they use this word cultivate. And I love that now because it's exactly right. You know, the more you do something, the better you get at it. And you can get better. This is mad, but it's brilliant. You can get better at compassion. You can get better at loving yourself and looking after yourself. And once you've got yourself, you know, topped up, then my goodness, you can flow that out to everyone around you. And so this was a really, it was a game changer for me, actually, in terms of the experiment, but also in terms of my life, it literally changed the way I viewed my family. It opened, if, if meditation is about, um, you know, uh, kind of countering the contraction of life, the, the shrinking that, uh, that busyness and life can do to us and stress, then compassion was an you know, expansion. And that expansion was one of the most profound things. And it, and, and it kind of almost went a bit the other way for a while. I found myself walking around, you know, feeling compassionate and love towards strangers at the bus stop. And, you know, people in the supermarket, I just had the gushing of, of compassion for people. So I kind of had to rein it in a little bit as well. Um, but it was, um, yeah, it was a pivotal moment within the experiment um, for me and for those around me. People really noticed a difference. And people actually started treating me differently because I had opened. I'd opened this door 
to mm-hmm. to um yeah to that four letter word <laughs> which we dare never say <laughs> certainly not as Brits with our upper lip it's like we don't say it but it's such a cool thing (laughs) I love that story when you talk about how you tried it out on your mom just saying I love you yeah I thought that I was like oh that's so honest this this whole book that you wrote was just so honest um yeah what do you have Leanne (laughs) so a, a lot of people have heard that before like oh in order to love others you have to love yourself first and it's like okay yeah like that's such a nice concept but like a lot of people I feel like don't even know where to go with that. What was your first step in realizing like I have to be nicer to myself? Yeah I mean you mentioned the inner voice so one of the things that tends to kind of uh, get amplified mm-hmm. um, doing a compassion-based practice um, is the inner voice and you the practice is about listening to that in some respects um, and I actually, when I started off doing all this, I said, oh, I, you know, I don't beat myself up. You know, I'm, I'm not mean to myself. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of okay. I'm kind of my own champion. But then I realized that that inner narrative is really sneaky. It's kind of low level sometimes. And they can, and you can, you can have these voices that are really deep in your consciousness that are critical and judgmental. And they were never, I never had kind of like inner voices that were nasty, but they were really judgmental. And in fact, I love Sharon Salzberg does a lot of work on compassion and she's a really good teacher to go to if anybody is interested in pursuing compassion work. And uh, she has this this great theory that you can name your inner critic. And I love that. So rather than try and push these things away or reject them, you know, we've got to embrace them. It's the only way really that you conquer and kind of, find any kind of, of balance and so mine's called Cruella de Vil because instantly I could picture her she had a still she had one of those long cigarette holders and she was a bit mean but you kind of knew there was a story there mm-hmm. and so I personified her and that really helped me and and, and and others have done that and I think that's quite a nice way to start to build that relationship with yourself is to rather than reject these other sides to ourselves these um you know, other personas that we all have within us, um, when you meet them is to go, oh, bit of curiosity, you know, who are you, you know, and, 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 and be part, let them be, be there in your life. And, you know, you can choose how far forward they are, or, or whether you can push them back. And that's, so Cruella's never gone. She's mm-hmm. just, you know, she's kind of in a back room these days. She just doesn't, <laughs> she's not front and center. And that's really important. Um, but it's also possibly worth mentioning how a loving kindness practice works. Um, in that it's affirmation. So if you do want to start opening that door to self-compassion, then it's a it's a stepped process um, using the Buddhist form of loving kindness. And you just repeat affirmations. And, you know, then may I be kind, may I be happy, may I be well. And for some people, they may just say that, you know, in a meditation and burst into tears. That's not uncommon because when do we ever say that to ourselves? Right. Yeah. We don't talk to ourselves like that often. No. May I'm I like, may I be on time? It's like, <laughs> it's like the nicest mind gets. Yeah. Just, just, just asking yourself, may I be well, is really, you know, if you really let that drip into your consciousness, which is what you're doing in a meditation session, is, um, is, is quite, even just doing that. Is, is quite a lot of work going on there 
And so in the stages, you then move on to somebody that you know really well, and then you go to someone that's neutral, you know, like in my case, it was my local pharmacist, he's a nice bloke, but I don't know him. And then you move on to someone that you have, you know, some difficulty with, that's, that can be challenging as well. And then you go on to kind of the whole world and that and that's the stages. So there is a formula, if you like, that you can follow um, if you wanted to start on that journey. So when you were doing these affirmations at one point in your book, there was a, a part in that mantra that was, um, may I be safe? And you said you got kind of, you know, teary mm. about it because you realized, I guess you didn't feel safe in your body after, you know, waking up and your body had betrayed you like that. Like how... How did you start to trust your body again after that trauma happened to you? Yeah, isn't it funny? It's another of those four-letter words, safe. I mean, so much depth and so much meaning to it. And to every single person, safe means something different. And there is a strange thing that goes on with an autoimmune illness, which is your body has attacked itself. You know, this isn't an external bacteria that's come into your system and caused havoc. This is your own immune system that got it wrong. And so I found certainly within the compassion practice, there has to be hand in hand, a lot of forgiveness, a huge dose, buckets full of forgiveness. If you are to go through any of those barriers, you have to um, forgive your body. And the way I looked at it was actually... It was doing its best. It got it wrong, but it was absolutely doing its best. It was out to save me. It just tried to save me too hard. <laughs> so I, I, so I rebranded that relationship and I rebranded that experience to um, allow, a, a, you know, a big dose of forgiveness, and um, and that helps. And that makes you because you can move on from that. Mm. Have you moved on? Do you feel like you have a full sense of trust in yourself again? In terms of my own body, uh, absolutely. In terms of how it, um, you know, how it, it, it failed me. I mean, I have frustrations. I, I, you know, there'll be things I can't do and there'll be moments where my family forget because I'm, you know, very capable. Yeah. And there are, but there are moments where all my strategies go out the window. And the classic is like in busy places. So in fact, my, my son did it the other day. We went shopping for football boots and I said to him, you know, the score don't disappear because my children are like Houdini. They're very good <laughs> at disappearing. And this is a very big store. It was one I hadn't been in before. So I hadn't mind mapped it. That's a system yes. that I used for locating myself. And so I and also with all the stamps and the colors, I have no idea where I am. I get very visually disorientated. Very overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very overwhelming. It's complete visual noise for me. Yes, I have that as well. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So do you have a visual problem or? Um, No, I I just have an anxiety overwhelm (laughs) problem and and spaces tend to do that. I am very much like you said, map things out. You have to know to be comfortable, to function, to get in and out and do what you need to do. I am very, I have to very, I have to plan that way in order to get things done. Yes. Well, that's exactly what I do. Um, yeah. And those are visuals, those are strategies and they are very effective until your children don't listen to you and, Correct. Um, and, and they break the rules. That was not and, the plan. <laughs> no, that wasn't the plan. So um, he's a little sod at the moment. And so he disappeared because <laughs> he's football mad and he went, he went off trying to find football kit 
And so when he came back, because I couldn't find him, I was livid and I was much more cross than I would be normally. And that was not his fault. It's because my strategies had failed me. Correct. Mm. My anger wasn't at what had happened. It was at that moment in time that I, I couldn't control it. And that's, you actually have to let that go. And it's really hard. And that's why these practices are so important for those moments. And they don't change them. They offer a little bit of mitigation, if you like. They allow you to intercept that moment and breathe a little bit and put a bit of space between you and the wayward sun that's disappeared. And whilst I was cross, I pulled it down much quicker than I might have done, you know, in past years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the frustration still was not at my body. It was the situation I was in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you do have to differentiate the two in order to kind of keep moving, I I would assume. Mm. That inner critic, um, you referred to it as spitting venom. (laughs) What, I know we talked a little bit about how you cope with with that in in Cruella and things like that. When she does rear her ugly head, how do you put her back in her place? What do you say? Well, I have kind of quite a lot of uh, I, should, I should caveat this with they aren't inner voices I need to be um you know medicated by a medical doctor about <laughs> these are all just normal you know yes yes no I, and I agree yeah I I don't want to yeah yeah I'll tell absolutely. you why because the first time I mentioned when I was writing my first book I talked about um inner narratives and I was sitting around um about six um neuroscientists and one of them very kindly kind of went um so when you hear these voices, I no, no, it's not those yeah, voices. Don't like worry, that. Don't worry. Yeah. And, and there was this. What are they telling you to breath. do? <laughs> they all kind of went, oh, thank goodness. Yeah. Because we weren't quite sure how we were going to handle it. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't you think it's more of like the tone in which you speak? And that's kind of how I differentiate it. It's you, you very much know it's not, yeah, it's not multiple personalities living inside of you by any means. It, it's the tone in which you speak to yourself and, and it's how you kind of navigate. At least for me, that's my experience. Yeah, I mean, I think they, they can have kind of different personalities. So I, I think in that um, there are several um, psychology models that we that uh, that follow this idea of kind of um, inner inner kind of versions of yourself. Yeah, and they can some be from childhood, some from mm-hmm. teen times, and they're often attached to a certain narrative or story. And so when when those uh, moments come up and the and the voice comes up, I um, I hear it. And that's actually the most critical part of this. Mm-hmm. It really is, is actually the acknowledgement that it's there, which, which may sound a little bit kind of mad, but if you know it's there, you've got the choice to do something. It's when you are listening to it and you're so absorbed, you can't separate it. And so you act on it. And that's the difference. That's the really critical difference. So I wouldn't say that I ever get rid of them. I, 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 I have got an ability to push them back and I've got a number of tools that I can do that. I can do that with breathing. I can do that with, I go into my body. This is one of the, we have this incredible tool. It's a body and, you know, body awareness, somatic awareness is just amazing. So my feet (laughs) are my grounding thing. So I can swoop my attention down to my feet and whatever they're feeling like and wiggle my toes and just and because I'm conditioned to do this mm-hmm. that will instantly ground me and it pulls me back into my body and that has a brilliant effect because it just pulls you out of your head and even if you just do that a few times what happens is I get space 
And it's those gaps and the space that's so critical because then the rational mind can start to go, okay, right, we know what's happening. We, we, can, we, can, we can deal with this. We've got tools. Let's bring it down. Let's come back to baseline. And so that's tends to be, I, yeah, I go into my body and we'll use um, a very simple scan and, and my feet. <laughs> I love my feet. I, for that's amazing. It's so literal. It literally, you know, the thing on the ground. I, I that's exactly what it is. I, I relate. <laughs> yeah, and it works. It does. Well, and that's what in one of your very first meditation, like I guess groups that you went to, the instructor was saying like you don't have to believe your thoughts, and you said that was like very much an aha moment. That <laughs> I had reading your book was so refreshing because I had that exact same aha moment. I got this book. I don't even remember where I got it from, but I was sitting on the beach and it was called the untethered soul. And it said that your thoughts are not you. And I was just like, what, like, (laughs) what, like, what do you mean? Like I thought it, so it's, it's me. Like what, and I would think sometimes like, cause these, these thoughts, thoughts can be crazy. They can just pop into your mind. They can be absolutely insane. And I would like judge myself for even thinking that thinking that I somehow conjured it up and why would that come to me? Um, but he refers to that inner critic or that voice as your, your roommate. And so you kind of, instead of like living in like one little studio apartment, like you can expand your apartment with the awareness and create walls and doors and just create like the space you were talking about. And instead of those thoughts just zooming through and you believing like, okay, this is, this is what I'm thinking. So this is me then you create the space to, like you said, your rational mind to come in and think about, will that thought serve me? No. Okay. Let's move on. Yes. Okay. Maybe I'll dig into this a little bit. And that was a life-changing moment for me as well. It is. And I wished, I think I wrote the book. I wish I'd known that when I was like 13. Yeah. That's exactly what I thought too. It would have saved me so much like pain (laughs) and confusion. And I was angry. I was kind of like pissed off. Mm. I was like, hang on. Why did nobody, why, why didn't this written on the blackboard at school? What's right. Why is this a class? Stuff? Exactly. So I, I tell my daughter all the time, I have a 13 year old and I'm like, right, your thoughts, they're just nonsense. Yeah. You do not believe them. It is just this sometimes nasty, some mostly irrational voice making up stuff. Yeah. And actually it's interesting because um, your brain's basically, your mind is basically just guessing. Mm-hmm. it's making guesses and I learned this through researching my visual system so we see through best guesses <laughs> That's interesting crazy. Uh, yeah, yeah. So the whole visual world that you see so your brain prunes out loads of visual information mm-hmm. and it is processing and helping you navigate through the world by guessing statistically guessing what you should be seeing mm-hmm. and so because I knew that about my visual system it, that kind of helped me. I really like the science basically science feels very concrete and measurable and I like that I mean not every you know awareness well we actually can measure awareness a little bit but but I but I like having something like that that I can really anchor onto and so yeah I I often I can kind of and I use humor as well can look at a thought or, or a narrative a, a thought train that's gone off and another good question to ask yourself is what evidence do you have to support that and that's oh. a clanger it's a really good one because that little voice goes oh, oh you've caught me. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
because Cruella goes back in her closet yeah Yeah, she's in the back corner of the house yeah yeah get if you've got evidence step forward we want to hear this I'm using that in my parenting immediately yeah Yeah, you parent yourself in weirdly weirdly with your your inner critic yeah yeah no evidence off with you Mm -hmm. goodbye I love that (laughs) I have been dying to ask you about this and you brought it up right at the beginning too and just brushed over in the book but hypnobirthing (laughs) like please can you explain ever I need to know everything about this okay hypnobirthing is incredible and I I had um, a very traumatic awful experience with my daughter and then I completely rewrote that experience uh, with the birth of my son and I can't actually go back and find the trauma and the PTSD that I actually experienced with my daughter. It just, it's not there. And that's how powerful the mind can be. And hypnosis for me has been with me the whole way through this journey. We can invite our minds to believe different things. And with hypnobirthing, it was actually a real creep effect because you listen to all these audio tracks, basically. That's what you do. You lie in bed. And you and, and they seem kind of they don't really seem connected. They're not talking about having a baby. They're talking about walking through a field of cornflowers and about being like letting go. It, one of them is about a balloon. It takes a load of weight, you know, it takes rocks out of the rucksack that you've got on your back. So a lot of very visual language. This is a, a real hallmark of hypnosis and, and, in, and visualization. But it's so powerful because what you're doing is you're feeding the unconscious this message, which is you are empowered. You've got this. This is a natural process. And actually, whilst it's good to have you know, medical people around you, your body knows what to do. And in, when we allow that part of us to actually be the controller, that's the most incredible thing. So when I had my son, I was deeply fearful. I mean, I was absolutely terrified because of what had happened with with my daughter so I started using hypnobirthing and I ended up um, um, agreeing to having a home birth which might sound crazy but that was because I got a one-on-one with a midwife so back to the safety it was more important for me to feel safe with her in my own home than it was to go to a hospital anyway so we had a pool I wanted to have a, a you know a, 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 a blow-up pool a blow-up pool. Yeah, my husband pumped that pool up. Or... What a guy. <laughs> that was his contribution. <laughs> you know, it's funny, I was telling someone about this earlier today, actually. Um, we had a big row about it because my daughter was a, a week early and I knew my son would be early. And my husband doesn't like doing things on time. Um, <laughs> we're very different. You know, Yours too? Um, <laughs> yeah, we're complete opposites, let's be honest about that. And so I said, right, you know, it's eight days before, right, pump the pool up. He's like, I'm not having a swimming pool in our living room. I'm like, yes, you are. <laughs> because this baby's going to come and he's like wow I'm like mm. <laughs> so anyway he did pump it up bless him for six hours with a hand a foot pump oh my God. six hours it took him get the guy a blow dryer or something <laughs> yeah I mean it was really uh, we didn't have one of the plug-in ones why we didn't get <laughs> so he plugged it in and um yeah anyway um he he went off to work at six o'clock the next morning and my water broke and so I didn't have my husband there because he had a four hour commute to work and back. Wow. Uh, my midwife was having a root canal. Oh so she God. wasn't around. And I didn't give two hoots. And I was at home with a pool of water. And 
by the time uh, another standard midwife turned up, I was in the pool and I, d I didn't care if anybody was there because I was in such a deep hypnotic trance. I was in such a euphoric state. And I, I was saying, I'm not doing this. My body did this. And my uterus just was just this incredible, powerful organ. And it just birthed that baby in the pool. And it was the most triumphant, euphoric, painful. Let's not forget that. <laughs> I was wondering that as well. Yeah. yeah. So the pain, no, you're not totally separated. But that's like the fifth thing I'll tell you. It was euphoric and triumphant. Triumphant is the best word I've, I could, I've ever kind of found to describe that moment. And it was utterly the most amazing and empowering moment of wow. my life. And that was rewritten. All that fear, was, there was no fear. It was just jubilation. And that was all through hypnobirthing. So perhaps I'm a good advert for hypnobirthing. Yeah, I mean, I'm that's converted. Beautiful. Wow. <laughs> That ship sailed for me, but <laughs> that's amazing. I, I know you were dying to ask about the hypnobirth. I mm -hmm. cried real tears when I read your chapter on psychedelics. I mm -hmm. was blown away by your experience and the way that you relate it back to the reader. It was so beautiful. And can you talk about that experience with us a little bit and how nervous you were going into it? <laughs> Oh my gosh. So, so I'm a TV producer. I research stuff, you know, I, I, I do my homework and with all the different modalities, the 12 modalities that I tried, I didn't research because what I didn't want to be was biased. So I didn't want to just copy or, or, or unconsciously mimic someone else's experience. The one exception to the rule was psychedelics because there was no way I was walking down that path without knowing exactly what was going to happen Absolutely. and of course now even hearing myself say that I have to laugh at myself because that is just you, you can't know. prepare oh my god you can prepare as much as you like but it'll be the experience you need mm. and yes. actually the control was a really uh, kind of critical factor for me during that that actually you have to relinquish control so psychedelics I went to a retreat in Amsterdam called synthesis and I highly recommend them they are they are lovely they are and so I felt very safe and nurtured I was the only Brit there were quite a lot of Americans imagine <laughs> that intimidated <laughs> and kind of like hello I'm British I'm writing a book <laughs> I was just like oh god why did I say that? <laughs> I'm like the dippy woman in the corner not at all um, no well I did feel like that um so, so yeah, so they, they um, gave a lot of kind of what they call flight instructions, which is the preamble. So one of the most important things to talk about with psychedelics is to split entheogens, which is plant medicine, using it for therapeutic means from party drugs. And it's really important that we separate those out because taking LSD or a mushroom at a festival isn't such a different experience from taking it in a very controlled therapeutic environment. Mm. And it's called set and setting, which is to do with your mindset and the environment you're in, because that will inform what happens mm. without question. So it's very important that you do feel safe and that you have got um, a protection around you from other people watching you. I mean, it, I had to laugh because we had the same ratio as that you have at a nursery. <laughs> we were like toddlers. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty much one-on-one -on -one and um 
but yeah so so um i i had a bit of an extraordinary experience with my psychedelics um weekend because i was introduced to breath work in the morning before my psychedelic um trip mm-hmm. and that blew my mind so i remember walking around i pretty much just walked in a big circle around the retreat going oh my god because my brain had just been blown with this incredible experience of transformational breath so weirdly when i walked into the um psychedelic experience um i kind of i kind of was slightly off the boil so and and actually when i went to take um you make your own little tea they give you um not actually the mushrooms they give you the truffle bit underneath the ground and that's for legal reasons the truffle, the truffles aren't banned but the mushrooms are in amsterdam Anyway, so it, it does the same thing. It contains psilocybin, which is the um, active part of the, um, of the of the plant. And uh, you crush it up and you make this little tea. And um, so you drink some tea and then you lie down and then they give you an hour. And you've got these things called mind shades, which is like a block over your eyes. And you're under a big blanket and you feel very comfortable and safe. And then, um, and then the gong goes and there's an option to take more drugs if you want, you know, to take a bit more tea. And talk about Cruella. Oh, my God. She was just like here going, what are you doing? You've got it wrong. Yours isn't working. Isn't this typical? You think you've just done this all wrong. You're not, you know, I just have Cruella just here for the hour. And I had a lovely lady behind me. She tapped me on the shoulder and she went, she's like, do you want more tea? I'm like, hell yes. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, there bitch, no watch this. going on here. I said, you know that you're tripping because your default mode network quietens. And so the Cruellas of the world go. I'm bloody Cruella was here. Yeah. Uh, so I then, the two of us, she's scooping up this tea. So I'm taking every little last residue in my little teapot. Like this. Put the lot, lay down. Licking the side, yeah. I was pretty much licking the inside of the teapot. Yeah, I, I was like, it's got to work. Lay down. And then I blasted off into outer space. And it's quite common to go through stages. Um, I mean, there is no real prescriptive experience, but it's not uncommon to feel like you go through um, like a death experience where you kind of dissolve. Um, I just bypassed that. I just became the universe really quickly. <laughs> and I was everywhere. And this, it, it just felt like it was this enveloping world, but I was the enveloping world. It was quite extraordinary. And yeah, I, I kind of became the universe for, um, for about six hours. Um, and I was left tripping on my mattress way after everyone else because I'd taken about twice the amount of Thanks, girl. <laughs> And yeah, yeah, so um, yeah, it was, it, it was incredible, but it was kind of exhausting because I spent a lot of time trying to control it and, and very contracted, I think, and actually, there was a point about three quarters of the way through where my whole body just went, you've got to stop the control. Just let it go. And there was this massive letting go. And I remember thinking, oh. <laughs> you get given messages. And, and this is very common again. You, you get your own message. And mine was all about control. And I realized I've been trying to control my recovery, my illness, these strategies, and this experience was about letting all of that go and so that was a really interesting thing and and the psychedelic experience doesn't end when the drugs wear off it stays with you for weeks and it grips into your consciousness it doesn't it it kind of stopped doing it now but it it did it for yeah up to kind of six six months um where i'd suddenly have a little moment and you just have this little ping 
of an awareness shift or a, a real recognition of a pattern and you just understand yourself a bit more and that's the coolest thing in the world is to I mean it's all what we want isn't it such a gift ourselves. to give yourself yeah right do you feel like that only lasted for six months or you it kind of became your more of your new mindset so you didn't notice it as much anymore yeah I, th- I think it bleeds in it, it again it informs I mean every single thing we do informs you know I'm now you know I am biased towards that um so yes it it, it has informed and I want to go and do another psychedelic experience now kind of going that I don't need to control it because there is the fear mm. of the unknown not surprisingly definitely so I don't have that now so this is a familiar door to walk through and so I'd be quite I'd be quite um quite open to try and do that again in a very yeah. controlled environment um I'd be curious to see what it was like this time too I I have to wonder if the reason why you skyrocketed so fast through everything when um when the psychedelics kicked in do you feel like it was because you had been doing so much work prior to the psychedelics because psychedelics was near the end of everything that you had done correct yeah and that's a good question there's some really interesting research going on at the moment at that intersection so Mm -hmm. for example breath work is considered a non-ordinary state of consciousness interesting so this is, a, and there's lots, and this is what the scientists and I, you know, what they work on, that's their kind of area of expertise, is these different nuanced states of consciousness. And, and psychedelics is absolutely one of those, but meditation is on that same scale somewhere, it's just further down. And there's a really interesting intersection and a crossover. And I'm really fascinated about how you transition from one state into the another. And particularly if you can notice those shifts because with breath work I think um, those shifts are quite um, measurable and so yeah I think I think absolutely I everything I'd done up until taking the psilocybin was groundwork but I kind of think that about life every single experience I your experiences yeah it's everything you think you're going down the wrong path think you're making wrong decisions you think you oh I don't know what I'm doing you are you know exactly what you're doing what you're doing is something in the future you just haven't got there yet and when you get to that moment in the future and you look back you go that's why that happened it was all working for me (laughs) and all I was doing on that deviation down that side was I was learning I was gaining these skills for now Mm -hmm. because it all ties up and that's what happens in a psychedelic experience your life kind of you see the threads and you can see how it all links and ties up and that's Mm -hmm. kind of beautiful yeah and helpful very very I tell my kids all the time it's like it's just research just let's keep going we're just doing research right now and error we'll we'll get there when it's when whatever we're working towards is supposed to happen it'll happen but right now we've just got to find out what works and what doesn't and that's really um a theme throughout your book really with with trying everything um remind me did you know which 12 options you were going to do from the very beginning or was there some that didn't make the list or anything like that? Yeah, there's a couple that um, actually aren't in the book. I did do Tai Chi as well. Oh, um, interesting. The difficulty with that, I mean, they have got the data for that as part of the, the whole overall experiment. Um, but the data gets a, a lot of noise because of the movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we can kind of strip that out. Um, but yeah, that, that, that can go in. Um, yes, I did kind of know. We kind of made a plan. So MBCT was the foundation, the bedrock, because it's a a precursor to so many different practices, not all, but a lot of them. 
So that was a really sensible place to start. And I would tell anybody who's interested in the practice to go and consider an MBCT or an MBSR um, course for the simple reason that you learn really useful skills, but also you learn about how your mind works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what does that stand for, MBCT? Oh, um, Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy. Okay. So that's more common here in the UK, but we have MBSR as well. MBSR being the American, more Americanized version that Kabat-Zinn originated. Um, so yeah, so a little bit of also a lot, a little bit of the um, the kind of journeying was um, what came available, and I kind of loved that because I didn't want to just go to like the top teachers, and you know, I wanted to go by what was on my doorstep because the idea about this was, you know, for someone reading the book, you come with me. Mm-hmm. So this is to be the same as me or you doing it. That's so what we love. To local yeah. centres, yeah, and and. A lot of it was serendipity. I think I say at the end of one of them, I get this ping on my my phone, which is completely true from my friend saying, are you looking for a TM teacher? Because yes. my neighbor's just come back from a retreat. I was like, Barbara, shall I do a TM next? <laughs> oh yes, that would be good. I'm like, yeah, yeah, let's do that. And then, and then, you know, I had Kundalini yoga on the list, but it took me a while to find a teacher, but then that just slotted in when I needed it to slot in. And, and, it was kind of nice that that fate kind of took me on this wiggly path and it's weird looking back the only one that I wish I'd done perhaps done later because I was still quite a newbie was the tantric visualization and the green tara meditation because that was a difficult technique to learn and I still got a lot from that so that's the only one but otherwise all of the others I just think came in the right order and they delivered what I needed them to deliver at that time good or bad because you know you the book's full of the bad as well (laughs) things that it's it's got it all yeah that ego dissolution so of of all the 12 what do you still continue to do and is there one that was the most impactful uh, maybe the psychedelic one but (laughs) psychedelics is slightly you know to the side um yeah basically you can't call it meditation it is it is you know it's a consciousness road trip so it's legitimately in there but it's not meditation right right um that i have a, i have a separate you know relationship with and, and will be interested to, to do more things in the future um, i suppose in, there's, there's different answers to that so the one that probably impacted me the most in the most sort of instant way was breath work and so much so that i actually came back and i said to tristan the um the the professor at cambridge who i, I work with I said, oh, my God, what do you know about breath work? I, I, I said, you know, it was this incredible experience. And it's, it's kind of um, distinct sort of stages in terms of consciousness. I said, there's a lot there. There's a, you know, real transitioning. And, and you know, the cognitive mind is very dulled. And it's the emotional body that comes up. I said, loads, really interesting. So actually, I am training to be a breathwork practitioner. And we are doing another study into breathwork and in the year since I said that there is a PhD student that is now starting at Cambridge and we're going to do another study congratulations that's amazing that's pretty big which is really exciting because I will be obviously a big collaborator on that and I'll be the teacher but in terms of my personal practice compassion is there but I what I've learned from doing this and this is perhaps one of the most I didn't expect this one of the, the best parts is that we don't have to be too rigid with meditation. Um, it can be prescriptive. So I prescribe. I use what I need when I need it. Now, I don't jump around because I would never advise anyone to go from technique to technique because that's 
you know you, you wouldn't do that for your body you wouldn't go zumba one day so you know you have to be a, a bit sympathetic to what it is you're doing but at the same time i've got such a wealth of experience now that i know exactly what i need compassion underpins everything but i will do um i'll sometimes do a practice which is all about you know joyfulness if i feel like i need that mm-hmm. And part of that is having that awareness of what, what it is you need. Because if you know what you need, you can do it, can't you? Yeah. So, yeah, so I know it's not quite the answer. Everyone kind of wants one technique. <laughs> there isn't one technique. Um, it is a little bit of dabbling. But I, I don't think dabbling is bad. And I also don't think we need to shoehorn something brand new into your life. I also often say this to people. Just adapt what you're already doing. Yeah. You know, there's this there's this silly thing that you know oh, it's got to be candles and sitting in a special room on a special cushion. Have the outfit, yeah. yeah. Like you've got to get these weird baggy trousers. Who says that? No. <laughs> and you know, you can do mindful walking in your local park. I'm doing a project at the moment, a public engagement project, using forest bathing and mindful walking and a whole load of the other techniques that I've developed. Yeah, I want to talk about that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this is a, it's called Park Bays. It's a really cool project I'm involved with. Um, so you know, so you can but you can be mindful while you're washing up and this is the other thing you don't necessarily have to go and sit for 30 minutes mm-hmm. i mean yes that, you get a lot from that but you can do two minutes if you just recalibrate by standing while you're washing up and just go to your hand in the water what's how how warm is the water where are your feet you know you want one foot to just ask yourself something just inform your body you go to that whole somatic experience two minutes just connecting with your body can change your day mm-hmm. and you just if you do that four or five times that's a i say to people that's a practice mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and that's the drip 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 effect so that i think we've got to get away from this um you know grandiose that we've got to sit in a room and go om it doesn't need to be as complex as that i mean absolutely if you want to do that but if you want to just start small and simple then there are lots of little ways of doing that mm-hmm. yeah. can we talk a little bit about the project <laughs> Tell me all about it because I went on your website. I want to hear it from you. Okay, so Park Bathe is yes. another of my crazy mad ideas. This is what I do. I love them. Keep having them. I, I have a crazy mad idea, and I go, I think there's something in this. I think it's really interesting. I found another scientist at Derby University, Kirsten McEwen, and I actually interviewed her for my podcast. And she'd done a lot of work on compassion. So we had a, she's so informed. It's a really great interview. Um, she's just so knowledgeable. We had a brilliant chat. Then afterwards, I said, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in a, in a new series um, for the podcast about walking and talking about walking in nature. She goes, well, I've just done the first forest bathing study in the UK, where she actually compared it against the compassion practice. I was like, Ooh. <laughs> I mean, meant to be again. <laughs> I was like, we need to have a chat. Um, and I was like, you need to know what I'm like. I'm a doer. I'm a producer. So I go 100 miles an hour and I'm going to take over your life. Are you all right with that? Went, yeah. That's um, how I can't into this. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's exactly, it, it, I, honestly, that is what happened. And we started in March. And so on the Park Bathe Facebook group, there is a film. We made a film. We got funding for a film. We did a pilot study where we took um, a small group. And the idea of this, so I should explain what the idea is. The idea is that you can walk mindfully in, in nature to improve your well-being in a lot of different ways. Your physical health, whether it be a uh, a respiratory illness, uh, improve your immunity, your heart in terms of heart rate variability. So that means that you can regulate stress better. 
and that obviously improves your mental health. Now, to the people who are what we call the believers, so people who already use mindfulness, they're like, yeah, I know this. But then there's a whole range of people who are like what we call the eye-rolly skeptics who go, that's woo-woo nonsense. Yeah. Right? And there's no way on earth you're going to get me walking around, you know, hugging trees. <laughs> and so we're really interested in those people because actually it's really, really simple and you don't have to hug a tree. And so I really wanted to make forest bathing accessible, streamlined, simple, woo-woo free and a tool that you can switch on and off as you need it in your local park. And that's why it's called Park Bathe. And so Kirsten was really interested. And yeah, our first study was really successful. Yeah. So Great. Yeah. So um, the forest bathing study, one of the measures is to measure people's anxiety. And they had a 29% reduction in anxiety in their group. Wow. After three hours of walking and doing a forest bathing exercise in an ancient woodland. Now we did one hour and we got a 24% reduction in anxiety, which is really interesting. How is it measured and what does the walk consist of? So, so the walk um, is slow walking. And, and it sounds, when I tell people, they kind of look at me like I'm a bit mad. Like it's so obvious that you don't Best do things it. usually are. <laughs> yeah, it really is one of those, what we call the bleeding obvious. switch on those senses so you know and i always equate this to like we live on a motorway like you know 100 miles an hour foot on the pedal locked in your you know frontal vision and the idea with this is you just slow down come down a gear and slow your walking and when you slow your walking you can look around you because it's safe to do that and there's a lot of research as well about vision and about being you know just to do with being in the um, sympathetic if you're locked into front vision that, that will increase your stress levels because you um uh that's a trigger it's like tunnel vision yeah. almost yeah. And, and that's because you fix because you need to be safe and escape or whatever so <laughs> when you can have a softer open vision this is triggering the parasympathetic which is the more relaxed state and the, what's called the feeding breathing state so we're basically trying to encourage the body to go into this much more relaxed um state and we do that by mindful looking. So we look at different, uh, like we, we do a perspective one where you look at trees close up, mid range and in the distance, and then we switch back and forth. We kind of do some little exercises around that. We do ones with touching. We don't do the touching first of all, because British people, you say, go touch a tree. They go, I'm out of here. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Time um, for tea. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, see ya, you're crazy, crazy person. Um, so we do the touching towards the end um, and smelling is a really good one because mm. as you walk along and also there's no talking. This is really important because even if you go to the park and you walk with your friend or you walk your dog because you've got headphones in, whatever, your attention is mostly on what's in your ears and not on your senses. And so all of this is about opening up and smelling all the different smells around you. And then we do like touching leaves and, and if they can bear it, you know, touching a few <laughs> of the trees. And actually what happens is that most people do, they kind of look around, make sure no one's looking and have a little feel. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, even, and we took skeptics. We took people who did not want to do this, who scored very high on our skeptic score. And by the end, they'd all changed their mind. Wow. And that was just really awesome. So as a, as a beginning study, it was really uh, positive. We've got, we've got funding bids in now. In fact, I'm hoping to hear in the next month. 
and we've got another big study planned for October in my local park got permission to do that and then that will run as a podcast series so I'm going to interview a skeptic each week and take them out and we're going to see what happens so oh that's very exciting it's so genius it's so genius I I just want this to work so bad because it is it's it's the simplistic methods that people can do to heal themselves. And I love that your curiosity took you there. Um, both Leanne and I were saying how much like this should be required reading. <laughs> it yeah. should be at the top of every book list because it really was that impactful and relatable read. Oh, well, thank you so much for that. Because, you know, that's why I wrote it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really nice that it works. It did. It totally worked. And that's also like why we're doing this, because we're trying to spread awareness about different types of therapies and ways to feel better. And um, I was just like, oh, we should have just had Vanessa on because <laughs> she did all the work for us. She did all of it. She did all of it. How has this impacted how you parent your children, oh, this whole experience? Yeah, big time. If you're going to have kids in the house and spend three years wearing this, it's which is not, okay, it's sexy. not as bad as I pictured though. This is the third model. Okay. <laughs> before this were like twice the size. It came right up here. When I did the walking meditation, I went and I had a bubble That's hat. It. Honestly, I was this egghead. I looked ridiculous. <laughs> Honestly, you should have you seen it. You did it for science. That's another science. form of meditation, just like putting yourself out there and not caring what people think. I well, feel like. <laughs> I just thought this is an experience. I'm just going to go with it. It'll be awful. Um, <laughs> but I'll get something to write about. And you know what? It was amazing. Yeah. That was the thing. I looked stupid. I was really embarrassed. And it still worked. I was like, whoa. How can I feel calm when I'm embarrassed? This is kind of interesting. Yeah. I'm calm weird so yeah so I've I've included my children I had to you can't wear this thing in the house without having them part of this so they've learned body scans with me they've done mindfulness a lot of the time they go oh mom but they're kind of curious and I talk about it and I try and normalize it and they've seen changes I'm oh, I still lose it you know when they disappear in a, a clothing shop but it's a lot less and it's much more reasonable. I'm, I just bring it back down quicker. I'm less shouty, I think is what they'd say. And, and, in, and the compassion work changed my relationship with them. I'm much more tactile. I stop, I look them in the eye. I do my best to talk to them. We have something called 10 minutes of time, which I have to say in school holidays sometimes goes a bit out the window, but mostly we do have this, where they each get this one-on-one -on -one time and I really, really try to try and remember that because it, it's a game changer in terms of the relationship. And it's such a simple thing. It's just 10 minutes where they lead the time. You do what they want. And my little bees have me jump on the trampoline yeah. because that's really funny because I mostly pee myself if I go on the trampoline. Oh, mom time. <laughs> all right grab the diapers <laughs> just, oh my son loves it I mean I'm quite glad actually he's slightly outgrowing the trampoline now but yeah um, but he'll have me you know crawling around the floor doing um this silly game with a sock and a ball you know and, and that's the idea is to have them you go down to their level yes so, yeah so it's, it has made me parent differently it's made me much more empathetic to them as people and to to um I was always doing my best but I think I'm I'm you know we all just do our best, but I, I think I'm doing a little bit better. I've still not got it nailed. I mean, who has the parenting nailed? 
but um but if they claim that they have it figured out they're wrong yeah like I mean I don't think I'll ever have it figured out I'll show me the evidence good, I'll be good enough and I'll stop at that good enough will do me that's right that's right I'm, I'm sure it's um poured over into your marriage with Ed as well um and you said he's still a bit of a skeptic he doesn't do the practice but he's he's seen the changes in his what has he implemented for himself through watching you it's really interesting because he totally rolls his eyes and because he's my husband he gets dragged into these things but it's funny right. he tells his work I hear him on the phone talking to his work colleagues and he tells them all about it and I'm like <laughs> you do listen you do listen but actually he was our very first guinea pig for Park Bay and this was really interesting so Kirsten and I went to do a little walk around the park and we and we measure heart rate variability with a strap that's actually a little electronic strap and it goes around your chest and it takes a constant measure of your heart rate and and what we're measuring is how quick you can um, regulate stress and actually uh, we want to see a change basically by doing the the, the forest bathing the, the streamlined forest bathing model that we've devised and so we took him in the peeing rain and he didn't want to do it and he was very resistant and he was you know and um at the end because he's science science minded he said oh you know what what's the score <laughs> did i win what's my score <laughs> did I win? and and kirsten went oh well there's been a, a five millisecond increase and increases are good, by the way. Okay. That, that means you've regulated better. And uh, in fact, I think it was six milliseconds. That's right. It was six milliseconds because five milliseconds is significant. And he was really like, oh, oh my God. So this, this worked. It was turned stress levels was very low, like a two or a three out of seven. And at the end, he went, I was wrong. It was higher. And that, there's a lot in that. And he That's went, insightful. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. And he thought about that for days. I know he did because I could see it. <laughs> mm-hmm. You got to him. <laughs> well, it was just because we do this, don't we? We tell ourselves a story, you know, and, and um, yeah. So there was, so he has, I, th- I think I'm, I think I'm changing him slightly. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> you know, we, we could all do these things in our own ways. Um, yeah. The, you know. yeah. I think that's the message, right? That your curiosity and your body will, will cope but your curiosity can lead you out of it if you're really willing to kind of follow that and see what your body needs and listen to yourself. I think it's absolutely incredible. Yeah, and and I think, you know, this resilience word that we're all seeking, you know, everyone wants resilience. What is resilience? Well, you know, it's at the other end of curiosity because Mm. we are our own healers and it sounds a bit, you know, but, but we are, we know what's best for us. It's just about being open, exploring a little bit um, and, allowing for failures, allowing for getting things wrong and, and just seeing that as part of the journey and getting rid of this perfectionism that I suffer from still and loads of people I know suffer from. And just, yeah, having a go. And, and you know, I, again, this I really, really do believe don't try and do something new, just adapt something you're already doing. Mm-hmm. It's much easier. Yeah. And so, so Ed does, you know, the, the walking thing, it, it did go in. It definitely did go in. Yeah. And um, yeah. Well, ask me in six months. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I, I will 100% be circling back. I'm, I'm so curious about the breath project in the park bath. I, th- I think that it's just absolutely wonderful. I know I keep saying that and echoing that statement. I just think what you're doing is just very, very unique and interesting, important. And so thorough. You. 
so well, thorough. Yeah. <laughs> like I appreciate the shit out of that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, absolutely. And and the great thing is working with these scientists, you know, they're scientists, so they're, they're, they're really on it. And, and Kirsten's great because she was a skeptic. That's what I really like about her. Yeah. Um, she was just like when she she's a health researcher. So she's looking for models. And the idea with this is we roll this model out across the country. It's every local park. And in fact, there's a couple of American um, mindfulness teachers that I've connected with as well. And they're really interested to watch what we're doing. And the, the idea is that this is, you know, a public health model that everyone can do. And she when she first came across the forest bathing research, she was just like Ugh. walking trees, really like, no sorry and so she was really kind of skeptical herself and then the research was overwhelming so she was like well I've got to look into this so I really like that she comes from the skeptic perspective as well it really makes it legitimate and I think if we can if we can even just help one percent of people then you know it's worth all the um all the time and effort yeah and we, we just want it to grow so yeah come and join the Facebook group you know find us on Instagram and support it and um follow what we're doing that's yeah we definitely will. We definitely will. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us. This was so much fun. fun. Yes, I learned so much. Can I ask one more question? Just oh, okay. Because I'm curious, and um, I don't know the next time I'll get to talk to somebody who completely lost their vision and got it back. Um, but you were talking about how when your brain was healing, you were experiencing, I think it's called synesthesia, yeah. um, where you had kind of like the blending of the sound mm-hmm. and the vision. Mm-hmm. What Can you explain what that even like what is that experience yeah so synesthesia is exactly that it's the blending of the senses and it can be any senses and in fact it can be more than two it can be two or three senses mm. and this is where we are just such incredible people There's actually um, more people have synesthesia than you might think and it's where a classic is if you see the letter a if you were to imagine the letter a inside your mind's eye it's red So if you associate um, remembering words by a color scheme, then that's synesthesia. If someone plays a letter C on a piano and you taste coffee in your mouth, that's synesthesia. And there's so there can be, I've talked to so many synesthetes and there's so many interesting different um, crossovers. So it's, it's a crossover within the sensory range. And there's some really, really interesting ones. I mean, there's one called mirror synesthesia and that's where you feel someone else's pain which is a bit freaky Um, but there's loads of different types and Jamie Ward is our kind of UK big researcher and I went and talked to Sussex University researchers about that and in fact I wrote um, a feature for Mosaic magazine which actually was part of the welcome it doesn't exist anymore um, that had 100,000 downloads. Wow. <laughs> I know, it was syndicated. It was on CNN. Ah, <laughs> it was for everywhere. you. That's amazing. Yeah, so, so that's a really good piece to read. Um, I think that's why it went so far and wide because it was a first person writing about, a first person piece, I mean. And so as my color vision was returning, it doesn't just switch on. It comes very, very um, slowly. And I write about this a lot in the first book. And I had a very strange, about three month period where our local blue refuse bins all started to sparkle like a lit sparkle, like literally alive. And I would be walking with my stick with my friend and my friend would go, Oh God, (laughs) they'd see me stop in front of the bingo. It's sparkling. (laughs) She's on one of those psychedelic trips again. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. But I could control the sparklings. I could go up to the bin and if I touched it, it would go flat and all the sparkle would go away. Or if I said the, blue 
like so I'm triggering my brain I'm triggering memory and I'm, I'm bringing back online these rules of seeing where my brain goes you know what blue is because you've been taught blue you've understood blue your entire life let's bring blue back and it would bring blue back and it would go flat Whoa. stare at it and I go it stopped sparkling and they'd be like okay my mind is blowing now yeah. <laughs> I know my sparkly blue bins. You can imagine me contacting the research going, hi, so um, bins sparkle and I look at them. Can I talk to you? <laughs> we need research. <laughs> yes. What was the name um, of that piece that you wrote? Uh, oh, well, it was for um, Mosaic Sands. Okay. I'll send you a link. Okay, please. Um, Perfect. Yeah, it was a couple of years ago. So I went and research, I went and um, interviewed uh, a master's student called Daniel, who was at Sussex University and he is completely blind. And he did... Um, a very complicated uh, master course. I think it was uh, in physics, but he was doing uh, energy maps of the world to be able to see new colors for that. And like heat maps. I mean, I don't even understand what he, what he was doing. He trained his senses to be able to switch in a sound for color because we have innate associations with sound and color which the scientists were tapping into so he could hear a very high-pitched sound and know that it was a shade of yellow and as the sound went down he knew it would get slightly darker yellow or more ochre and as it went up it would become more paler you know wow incredible I, I stood with him in front of a computer while he did it and he's doing it all through his hearing so that's all in the pieces unbelievable cool isn't it yeah oh so cool so so cool i want to go get hooked up to an eeg machine (laughs) see what's going on leanne and i were talking about that before you even came on we're like how many times have you just said to be hooked up to a machine to be told you know what's going on it's awesome you don't get information like that so job done again thank you thank you for your book and for your time Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join in on the conversation, we invite you to come be a part of the HDC community. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching at Have the Combo. For information on all of our shows, guests, and more, visit htcpod.com. While you're there, be sure to hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Talk soon.